one of the other things uh, that developed in the early years uh, that we really don't have a lot of records about, uh, which hurts me (laughs) because of how much involvement I've had on the district level uh, throughout my time in the fraternity. Uh, The district system uh, that we know today is based off of what was adopted in 1941. But districts existed before then. Uh, and I mentioned earlier uh, in talking about our membership, the District 3 convention, where it was kind of Colorado and Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. There were districts before that as well. Uh, but it was a very, from what I can tell uh, in the work that I've done, it's it was a very loose system. It was kind of, OK, which chapters are as close as possible to call a district. Sure. Uh, they were they were not necessarily geographically aligned. It was which chapters can are going to be closest together that we might be able to get them together to do something. Mm-hmm. So, which is how you ended up with Colorado in Oklahoma and Texas in the same sure uh, right <laughs> in the same district. Uh, but for a while uh, before the original incarnation of the chapter went inactive, uh, you had like. Mississippi was in the same district as Oklahoma. Uh, so <laughs> well, because they like had that. they have Epsilon. So I right. guess I and, mean that's what yeah, you got. And and while Epsilon, the original incarnation of Epsilon was active, they were connected with those chapters. But uh, you know that's so it kind of floated around. You know, again, as best I can tell, depending on which chapters were active and you know their geographic proximity to each other. And it wasn't really until 1941 that we got a hard geographic system for the districts of, OK, if you're in this state, it means you're in this district mm. uh, and really kind of develop from there. Uh, so that that's one of the things that has grown over the years and that really uh, locked it in uh, to the district system as being part of our expansion efforts uh, and going into that. Uh, that regional alignment uh, was part of that when there was a greater move uh, to get those the districts involved in expansion. And and at the time that, you know, that's again, still when we were numbered districts and there were nine, correct? Uh, Depending on which alignment of the district you look at. (laughs) uh, uh, The original, uh, the 1941 alignment, there were 11 districts. Oh, wow. There were 10, there were 10 districts in the international. Uh, There was another alignment that had 12, uh, 11 number districts in the international and then shifting to 10 and then, shifting around. So it, you know, it changed more than once. Uh, that's, and I don't, I I haven't gone through the national convention minutes enough to know exactly how many changes, but I know Ken Corbett and Scott Stoll, uh, from our history and archives team have had that information for a long time, uh, (laughs) on just kind of how many district realignments there have been, uh, and things like that. And, uh, the wonderful work that they've done through the years, uh, to record and preserve our history and find out things like that and share it with us about, well, you know, you, you haven't always been in this district. Some, you know, (laughs) sometimes things and the only reason I threw out the number nine is because I'm yes. from the Northeast and I know that yeah. we used to be District Nine and our publication was called Lines from Nine. And so yes. there's the, you know, the little tidbits of information that are absolutely useless, but for whatever well, reason I remember. <laughs> well, that, and but you have Lines from Nine in the Northeast. Uh, the Southeast District has the eighth note because that was District Eight. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, the Southwest District uh, has the new Alto. Uh, which originally was the ALTO. uh, And instead of using our number, uh, they used an acronym of the states. 
So. Uh, yes. Okay. So new for New Mexico, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma. Yep. Clever. Uh, so in all of the districts kind of had things like that, you know, the regional identifiers uh, once the system really got going. Uh, but that's another that's for another time because it really didn't get going. Uh, until after World War II, uh, when things really started to develop uh, into the district system we know today. So, so what was so special then about the 1941 National Convention? I, I'm looking at your notes and you say that that was such a major turning point for the organization. Yeah. What was so special about that? Well, uh, to lead into that, uh, we kind of need to talk about the 1937 and 1939 conventions, because there's some events that happened at those uh, that lead into what made 41 so important. Uh, 1937 convention is when A. Frank Martin comes back to the fraternity. Uh, he's been recruited to come in and try to knock Scott Squires out. Uh, <laughs> and as someone else is recruited, uh, Squires had a friend on the National Council. They were pretty close in their operational things and stuff like that. And whether because of personal disagreements or professional ones, uh, folks were recruited to come in and try to knock both of them out. And that was successful on both uh, Squires and his cohort, uh, a man named John Brady, who was serving on the National Council, uh, were defeated in their elections. Uh, and that's when A. Frank Martin came back. Uh, and a man named Herman Zemer took over as our executive secretary. Uh, he was also from the Delta chapter, like Scott Squires was. Uh, and he had actually been serving on the district council at the time and had to resign as a district officer so he could become the national executive secretary. <laughs> uh, so uh, for that, um, and A. Frank Martin came back and was elected as the grand editor at that convention. And then in 1939, at the University of Cincinnati, A. Frank Martin became the executive secretary, uh, and a brother from the Upsilon chapter named Joseph Davis took over as the grand editor. And then in 1941, both those positions went to A. Frank Martin, and they've ne not been separated since. Eventually, the grand editor position was just kind of folded into the operations of national headquarters and faded away. Uh, but for a time, they were separate. Uh, but 1941 is when they came together and stayed together mm -hmm. uh, since then. Uh, but uh, some events happened at the Cincinnati Convention. Uh, there was a call to revise part of the ritual. Um, and again, without getting into too many details, because we may not have uh, fully initiated folks listening, uh, there is a part of the ritual that was de determined to be uh, just completely out of line. Uh, at the time, it was just viewed as well that maybe this is a bit too rough today it's completely out of line uh, and would probably get someone arrested <laughs> so it's that bad a definite um, policy violation for sure yes yeah oh uh, it's nothing but policy violation <laughs> so um and and in i think it says something about the organization when we were looking at that time because this is the late 1930s and uh you know if we're being honest things like and this kind of stuff, it, you know, it's not necessarily welcomed, but it wasn't exactly frowned upon either. Sure. You know, just a much different time for that. And even at the time when some of this stuff might have been more acceptable, they were looking and analyzing going, you know, this is a bit much mm -hmm. and we need to tone this back. And they did. Uh, there was a proposal to uh, alter that. Uh, that was the proposal was made and kind of a working model of what to change created in 39. And that was finally approved in 1941 as well. Um, we also have a, Another key figure that we need to talk about before we really get into 41, uh, and that is Fran Todd. Uh, and Fran was national president uh, 
of the fraternity going in leading into the 1941 convention. Uh, he's from the Upsilon chapter at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and someone uh, after as we were coming out of the Depression, uh, just somebody that was uh, really important in repairing the organization, uh, getting us back on solid feet, footing, uh, helping our reputation, things like that. Um, William Scroggs uh, is someone that if you read his correspondence, you know he can be prone to hyperbole from time to time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some of that, some of his most fervent hyperbole was saved for Fran Todd, uh, just thought the world of him uh, and the, what he brought to the table to the organization. Uh, a really important figure uh, also in the founding of Tau Beta Sigma, which uh, again is something that can be saved for the, the war discussion uh, <laughs> and everything that went on there. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a really key figure in fraternity thought and operation at the time uh, and someone that, uh, by all accounts that I've seen, we were fortunate to have uh, in those positions at the time to get us back going uh, as we came out, of, uh, came out of the Depression and to provide us leadership uh, from the Board of Trustees in the war years. So, so you've talked a lot about the, the the Grand Council and that makeup. Did we always have a board of trustees, or when did that come into play? Nineteen forty one. That is one of the reasons uh, that the the nineteen forty one National Convention really is a major milestone event for the fraternity. Uh, looking at things like that, you know we mentioned we had the ritual revisions that were adopted. Uh, and when I can do the talk to folks uh, on a level where I know they can hear that information, I can explain just exactly what was changed and they will understand why uh, that was such a major change. And I hate to be vague like that. And if you, I, and I'm sorry if it's bothering folks that are listening to, uh, but you know, we want to preserve secrecy on that. Well, and no, uh, and and just a yeah. moment on that, brothers. If you are curious about that, please um, reach out to Clint. Um, I know he would love to, um, you know, share that. And you'll be obviously at Southwest Convention. Um, you mentioned Southeast. You'll be there yes. as well, and obviously at National Convention. So if you are curious um, as to those revisions that happened in 1941, Clint, do you want to give your email? Uh, I will when we close. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd so. be great. So sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah. to no, that's all right. There. Uh, no, that, that, that's a good point. I'm happy to talk about this stuff, uh, you know, off, you know, outside of the podcast as well. <laughs> so, um, but uh, back to the convention, you know, we had that change, uh, but we also had major revisions, uh, basically a new national constitution adopted at that convention. And that constitution is the basis for our national constitution today. Wow. Uh, what the revisions that were done there and the things that were put in place kind of structurally in the constitution, that's you know, everything can be, you know, format wise, you can look at the 1941 national constitution and not tell, you know, and see a lot of similarities to the current national constitution. Uh, so a key document there. Now I can't tell you how much it was different before, because uh, I can't recall having seen a pre-1941 convention. <laughs> I think there's a couple around. I just haven't gotten a hold of them. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I think that there are some differences. Uh, and then 41, though, really solidified a lot of things uh, to go forward uh, where operations are a little bit more similar uh, and it, and becoming more of the fraternity that we're familiar with today. Sure. Uh, you also had a couple other things start in 41. Um that's when the Board of Trustees was established. 
uh, we there had been a review uh, as part of the constitutional stuff. Uh, I was actually just looking at the minutes from this convention earlier today uh, that uh, they'd gotten the articles of incorporation. You know, our charter from the state of Oklahoma and realized our corporation has no board of trustees. What do we do? <laughs> uh, and so that's when one was established uh, was at that national convention. Uh, and of course, our first chairman of the board is Bo. So, <laughs> no uh, surprise. <laughs> yes. Um, and then uh, one of the other major things that was established uh, at the 1941 convention uh, by a student named Ralph Senders, his brother of the Theta chapter at Oregon State University. He had an idea, proposed it, and was accepted by the national convention and the national chapter. And that's where life membership came into the fraternity was at the 1941 convention. And Ralph Senders is life member number one. Uh, as in honor of his suggestion. Uh, but uh, that's everyone who's received a life membership in the fraternity since then. It all goes back to Ralph and the 1941 convention. Uh, and just uh, kind of everything that went on there, the, the adoption of the district alignment uh, that was to become the framework for everything that developed in the district system uh, over the next almost 50 years uh, because the district system that the basis, the bones of the district system established in 41, even through the various realignments of the years weren't heavily altered until what you talked with Steve about uh, at the 1987 national convention. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was, you know, the, the basis of that system was in place for years, uh, guiding our expansion and development on a regional level. Uh, just a lot of important things happened there as we'd come out of the depression, kind of getting back on that footing. Uh, but then about three months after that convention happened was Pearl Harbor and everything became very different at that point. Um, so, uh, and it's interesting, uh, looking not only at the 1941 convention, uh, but some of the other conventions that happened at that, uh, in the early years as well, uh, ones that were in Oklahoma city or in Denver, or Cincinnati, hopping around these places, uh, you, you didn't have a lot, the attendance was not high at, at these events, um, because, uh, just for various reasons, but, uh, you know, you you see the list of attendees and kind of the you know here's the roll call here are the delegates and who's assigned uh, you know and there's not a lot of names on the list and some of the photos that were taken of these conventions uh, that we're fortunate to have in the archives at national headquarters uh, it's a full convention photo and there might be 30 people in the photo wow uh, just you know you had a it was a to go to national convention uh, was a major undertaking and, you know, because the way communication was at the time, the way transportation was at the time, you have to remember, you know, until the 1930s, uh, air travel was not, uh, really an option. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it was, uh, and even into the thirties and forties, you know, that's an expensive option. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, most, a lot of the folks going to these conventions, it's, we got to ride the train, however many days it takes to get there. We're on the train. Wow. So, if, you know, if you didn't want to ride the train, you weren't going. So, uh, you see, uh, and I, again, I guess it's those things you just take for granted. I never even thought about that, how they would get there. And was it still in the summer? Did they do it in the summer like we do now? Uh, dates would, dates varied. Uh, a lot of them were in, you know, some of the, they became more in the summer, uh, but they kind of moved around a little bit. The first national convention was actually held in January. <laughs> in in Oklahoma? 
In Stillwater. It's chilly. January, <laughs> Jan, in, in January of 1922 in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So the folks that came to that, and there were not many, uh, there's uh, there's a photo of the, that first national convention that we have in our materials, uh, was also in the campus yearbook that year. Uh, that's one of our records of that first convention is because they got a full page in the yearbook describing what happened at that convention. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, but there's there's about 23, 24 people in that photo. Wow. Uh, some of them you can look, and if you've seen pictures of the founders and folks, you, you'll recognize them very easily as to who some of those people are, but others you won't. <laughs> but uh, there were not a great many attendees. And, and then, you know, knowing, well, it's January in Oklahoma in a time when you have to be riding the train to get anywhere. Well, and then uh, when you consider <laughs> where like the beta and gamma chapters are, that's a little bit yeah. of a trek. <laughs> that, that is a long train ride. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, but even at that time, uh, a train ride from Norman to Stillwater uh, for Delta chapter to Alpha chapter would have taken a couple of hours. That's true. Uh, so, uh, and there, you know, roads were there, but they're not anything you want to try to travel on. And so that's, yeah, you know, just o- that, Oklahoma that... didn't have a <laughs> Oklahoma's highway system wasn't uh, paved until into until much later. So, <laughs> um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, it's one of the things that when I talk about this stuff, I try to emphasize some. I don't know if I've done the best job of that tonight, but try to emphasize that there. There's a lot of differences in the way things had to be done because of technolo- you know, technology, uh, things like that. Uh, but also just, you know, it was difficult to do some of these things. You know, there, there was a high degree of difficulty even in getting to the site of a national convention. Mm. Uh, you know, and so the, our brothers at that time that made all this happen really wanted to make this happen because they made it work mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of initiative and drive just to get the stuff off the ground and going uh, even beyond the founding, you know, because, you know, getting to some of these places was difficult. Now they, they did try to help themselves and eventually move the, that's why you see a lot of the early national conventions were held in hotels in major cities because uh, it's a little easier to hop a train to Oklahoma City or Denver than it is to get one to Oklahoma City and then take another one to Stillwater or <laughs> something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it, trying to make it all happen uh, was a lot more difficult for them at that time uh, in making it, you know, especially when you talk about trying to coordinate everything communication wise, uh, when you're talking about expansion or jurisdiction or things like that, uh, there really were a lot more challenges to getting that stuff done uh, than there are today. Things moved at a much slower pace. Well, yeah, so. that's what I was just going to say, you know, because I, I've been um, had the opportunity to see um, some of the that correspondence in those letters back and forth and I mean, when you think that even the mail ran at a slower pace then, I mean, and how challenging it must be to get things done when I I think sometimes we take for granted now, like, I mean, for example, last night I had a a council call, um, a video call where we were able to to get together. And I mean, and that was set up very easily over a text. And and when you have the ability to be able to meet so instantly like that um, and to know that, you know, 
just being able to communicate with each other on the council, let alone being able to communicate with members, you know, was so um, challenged at the time. It's incredible that their the growth was as consistent as it was, you know, that they're they, yeah. that, you know, like you said, that they were averaging about three or four chapters a year. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. When you think about at, at that time, that's remarkable. Um, and you, you mentioned your, your council meeting, uh, you know, if that took you an hour, you know, something like that, that would have been weeks worth of back and forth letter writing yeah. at this time. Uh, and it would have been someone would, whoever was initiating probably, you know, usually the grand president would have written out a letter. It would have been copied so that the same letter was being sent to everyone, you know, kind of like copying everyone on an email and then sent out. And then they would have to wait for the individual responses to come back, compile that, send another letter out to everyone. OK, here's where everyone stands. Let's talk about this and get more le- individual letters back, uh, you know, or have everyone send a copy of their response to everyone. And you're just getting these piles of mail to try to get business done. Uh, and we know that we, they had to do it that way because there are a lot of those piles in the archives. Uh, <laughs> we mentioned Jay Lee Burke earlier. Uh, God bless Jay Lee Burke because so much of the correspondence that we have uh, and outlining, you know, this history and being able to talk about the events that happened and know what happens. It's Jay Lee's copies of those correspond of that correspondence. It's his personal files that were given to the archives. And he kept all these things for wow. years. Uh, there are so many letters you'll see that are e- either addressed to Jay Lee or they're signed by him in response uh, in the archives. Uh, and we owe him a, we owe him a debt for so many things operationally on the national level uh, with regard to governance and jurisdiction. Uh, but we really owe him a great debt with regard to our history as well, uh, because he was able to save so much material uh, that would otherwise not have passed through the national office uh, and to become kind of the backbone of what we have uh, with regard to national council and national chapter operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the records at national headquarters are chapter specific or district specific, things like that. But a lot of the early national correspondence uh, is from Jay Lee's files. And so we're uh, and one of those things I'm definitely grateful for uh, to him for saving that stuff all these years right? Uh, because it provides such an insight uh, into how we have developed as an organization. Mm, incredible. Um, anything else to add as we wrap up, Clint? Well, uh, yeah, actually, uh, because we I skipped something earlier. We were talking about membership qualifications uh, and things like that. Uh, and for, you know, we mentioned way back in an earlier part of the podcast that, you know, we we're kind of looking at uh, honor society type membership. You know, you're looking at your upperclassmen in the band and things like that to be members. And eventually that changed. But uh, for that was in place for a while. Uh, and obviously we had our gender restrictions uh, until the 1970s and Title IX. Uh, what's I think some realize, but maybe not generally thought of consciously, uh, for a long time, uh, we also had race restrictions in our membership. Um, and that was with some of the, I I don't want to say that that's just how things were, uh, it, but with some of the places with our haphazard expansion, uh, and kind of all over the place, 
there were places that those things were going to become part of a policy just because of where certain institutions were located. Sure. Um, and, you know, even if a group had been against such things, some of them were going to require that they be there. Sure. Um, so we had we had some of those restrictions. Um but we also had resistance to those restrictions through uh, for a long time as well. Uh, and we actually, uh, and this is something that uh, can be discussed a little bit more in depth uh, in talking about World War II and the war years and things like that. Uh, but those restrictions were lifted in 1947, uh, much earlier than similar organizations uh would have lifted those kind of restrictions. And and reading some of the correspondence and things like that, had World War II not done what it did to the fraternity, I think those would have been lifted even earlier than that. Wow. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's part of what our history has been, but it was one that there did not last nearly as long as it did in other organizations. So... It's so interesting to note. And, you know, um, Clint, we, we keep hovering around the, the World War Two sort of stopping point because, we do. Um, you know, I know. And, and for our listeners out there, that's going to be the focus of um, our next uh, podcast um, episode as we continue to travel through history is really looking at the war and the impact of the war on the fraternity and kind of post-World War II um, and, and um, Tau Beta Sigma and, and what happened as a result on um, the impact of the war on the fraternity, because I know that that's just an episode in and of itself. Yeah. And it, yeah, and we have danced around a little bit. And uh, but this is also when I give this presentation, uh, you know, at, or I give this as a workshop and do that, you know, I, I touch on World War II and the things that have happened, but it really is its own thing uh, and everything that went on there. I, I, it's how I close this because after World War II, you know, you start to, you know, the fraternity looks a lot more familiar in 1947 and 1949 than it does in 1937 and 1939. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, where we were before World War II. And where we are after uh, are almost two completely different organizations, uh, just in the way we operated, uh, how we sought members, where we sought the campuses we sought to be on, things like that. Uh, it's just it's such a different organization and one that we still don't have a complete picture of because of you know uh, the lack of material to really get in depth and explore what the organization was. Uh, there are still things uh, that I see uh, as I do research and uh, unfor- you know for me I, it hurts a little bit because I don't have near as much time to do the research uh, <laughs> as I used to uh, and dig into some of these things. But uh, I still see things that little stray bits of information here and there that I can't connect to something else because we don't have what that meant. Yeah. You know, the, what, the thing that would connect it is no longer part of what we do. Um, I can give an example uh, from my chapter history. Uh, there's an award that the Alpha chapter has, uh, and it's this kind of a hang a wooden plaque with a rope on it to hang it. Uh, and it's got the fraternity crest on it uh, with actually a white chevron instead of a black one. So it looks a little different. Uh, but uh, it says it's uh, an award for it, Supreme Council Award for Efficiency. <laughs> and it's it's given in the 1930s. And I've we have the physical award. I've never seen anything that explains what the award is, why it was given to them, anything. 
because we don't have if we have records, I haven't seen them. But uh, my suspicion is we don't have any records that would explain what this thing is. So Alpha Chapter has a plaque that they've had for years that <laughs> no one seems to know what it means. So, and you don't know where you, uh, you don't know ones. what you were efficient at. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, you know, and other things that developed in that time, uh, other, you know, that's other tangents and things we could talk about for a long time, early fraternity awards, uh, kind of the award that was kind of the predecessor to the founders trophy, uh, called the Balfour trophy. Uh, you know, that was a little, that was a post-war thing, but, uh, you know, kind of some of this kind of stuff that there's either little record on or no record on, uh, you know, these things kind of, you know, just those little bits and pieces that appear, uh, and then trying to make the full picture out of the little bits that you have. Uh, you know, we have some great resources, uh, in some of the chapter files, the batons, uh, some of the archives, but then uh, beyond what's on those, you know, it can be a real challenge to figure out what things were mm. uh, and how things really work together. Because, if you know, if it's not in one of those things, then, you then the record know. may not exist. Right. So mm. that's crazy. Yeah. And then sometimes you just find random things that open up a whole new app. You know, a whole new section of information for you, yes. uh, and that's happened to me a couple of times. That so. happened, yes. You know, that happened to me a couple of years ago in Stillwater when we were um, working on Road to Wisdom, um, and I found um, a mention um, in a baton where we were being featured, and I, I can't recall the name of the book, but basically it was like a book of fraternities, um, and it said yeah. that we were we were published in it, and so I thought. Do we I remember asking Aaron, um, you know, do we have a record of this? And Aaron checked and he was like, no, but the book is in the library. So we took a field trip. Ken Corbett and I, who's on our um, uh, our curriculum team, but also on the history and archives team. So Ken and I were curious. We took a field trip, hit a roadblock when, of course, we couldn't check the book out of the library. And we're like, no, we don't want to check it out. We just need to make a copy of a page. Um, and so convinced the lady to let us do it um, and uh, made a copy of this page what was cool um, and, you know, Ken was excited about it was that this um, it was literally just this book of just recording fraternities and what they did in certain symbols. And there were a few things on there that one of which was talking and trying about our international expansion. And I, I don't have the paper in front of me because I, I know it was 20s, 30s, um, but they were talking about looking at expanding into Argentina and South America. And Ken was like, I've never seen this, you know, that that little snippet before, but clearly we had submitted it. We're trying to do something at the time um, to this uh, book of fraternities. And so I was so pumped because I was like, oh, something we didn't know. And, and I found it. And, and it was just that really cool history buff moment for me. Um, but it's it's always exciting when you can uncover um, just a little bit of insight into the why. And I know you've done that so extensively. You're always looking on different websites because I remember you showing me a few years back where you had gotten a program of the first national was it the first national convention you got a program and it listed what they ate it's the it's the banquet program yeah uh you, you never know what you will find on ebay so. <laughs> 
Um, but I was actually, uh, I had come across a copy of the 1922 yearbook, uh, that you talked with Steve about, uh, dedicated to Bo and all that. And we mentioned had outlines, the first national convention, uh, and it was going for a ridiculously low price, um, lower than I could even buy one at a shop in Stillwater. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it was maybe listed for 10 bucks or something like that. It just obscenely low. Right. Uh, and that's what drew my attention. Uh, and then, you know, looking at extras that were included with this yearbook, there was a dance card from one of the campus dances that year. I think it was from the fireman's ball, <laughs> uh, but I haven't looked at that in a while. Uh, and the other happened to be the banquet program from our first national convention. Um and not just having the menu on there, but also had the order of speakers at the banquet, which also identified which four brothers served as the official convention delegates <laughs> at the first national convention, which was not something that I had recall seeing before, uh, even in the documentation we had at the event. And then we for sure now uh, have access to that to know, you know who those delegates were. Uh, not just the speakers at the convention, but the, you know, the actual representatives of our four, first four chapters at the first convention. So and, you know, providing dates and, you know, following up in the campus newspaper uh, archives with that as well, knowing that the first convention was about a two day affair <laughs> in January of 1922. <laughs> so, but I mean, it uh, goes kinda, to show you that, you know, even though we know our records aren't complete, it's cool yeah. that we can still uncover those moments, you know, and for you it was totally unexpected. You know, it just, it just came in that yearbook. And, and so to know that there's still tidbits out there to be uncovered is kind of exciting. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And to know to latch on to them when we find them. Uh, and, you know, because we know our records aren't complete. Uh, I think all of us who have worked on history things uh, with relation to the fraternity over the years know that uh, if we see something and it's not familiar, we need to grab it. <laughs> because it may be the only one there is. Uh, and I know when that yearbook uh, that included the program came up, uh, the the bid I put on that, and thankfully was the only one who bid on it because it ended in the middle of the night. Uh, <laughs> but the bid I put on that, I think, was more than I had in my bank account at the time. Uh, it was just like, <laughs> I, I will charge this on the credit card, whatever. I, just, you know, that's this, this is coming to my house. We need so, it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, the, it, this is not going to be seen again and, you know, needs to be acquired as, as quickly as possible. So, uh, yeah. And unfortunately I couldn't uh, get much information about who it actually belonged to, uh, which was kind of the, the sad part of it for me. Cause I wanted to be able to trace that back a little bit, uh, as to which attendee, uh, that that had belonged to, but mm. uh, there was the seller. I think got it in an estate sale or found it in a house they were renovating or something. Uh, and there's no identifying marks in the yearbook, so uh, which is also very rare for that time. That you know a name or inscriptions from friends or something wouldn't be right uh, in one of those books. But uh, no identifying marks whatsoever. Hmm. So I just know they went to the fireman's ball. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Clint, uh, it's been um, incredible. I've learned so much um, from you this evening and your um, knowledge and, and ability to to share that with everybody. So glad that we have the technology like the podcast um, for people Absolutely. to um, listen in this evening. Um, and uh, for our listeners out there, our history buffs, um, you know, hopefully um, I can get get you back, Clint, and we can yeah. pick up where we left off and, and talk about Love World to. War II. Um, because uh, it's, I feel like this is a saga. Like, what's going to happen next? You know, because we don't. <laughs> when we when we think about the fraternity now, and especially when we're looking at membership education, um, you know, we talk about the beginning and we talk a lot about Bo, but we don't talk about a lot in between unless you go to convention and, and see um, something from you. So um, it's this project of of mine that I wanted to undertake with the podcast moving into the hundredth is very special, I think, because um, I don't know that we've ever sat down to really talk about our, our history in this way. And so um, I just appreciate your giving up your time to kind of share that with uh, brothers around the country. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. So, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but no, it, it, like you said, uh, this really is kind of a, a saga uh, in some ways uh, for the early part of the fraternity, especially uh, at least for me, uh, my interest is drawn to that because once you get after World War II, uh, our records are a lot better <clears throat> and there's so much more material and it's so much easier to trace our development and we're so much more of a familiar organization. Uh, this is the time frame, and, you know, the early years and leading through World War II. That's more interesting to me because it is so different mm-hmm. uh, and getting to learn about that development. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and some of the other things that went on, uh, you know, and some of the people involved. Uh, there's a whole host of names of national officers from that time that no one will recognize anymore. <laughs> they did their, uh, you know, they did their terms there and uh, moved on. And a lot of them, their chapters aren't around anymore either. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. Um, <clears throat> how the founders uh, progressed in their lives uh, at, after they left. Uh, you know, some of the things that go uh, went on with them, some of the great things that they accomplished. I know Steve touched on that a little bit as well. Uh, you know, what some of these guys went on to do was just incredible. Uh, and, you know, being able to research that and talk about them in depth as well uh, is always fun, too. Uh, and really, uh, that's one of the things, you know, not to, you know, it doesn't really talk in with, tie in a lot with what we were talking about tonight. But it's also it's something to talk about because uh, it really gives uh, I find it gives our students a lot of perspective on what it means to be part of Kappa Kappa Psi, you know, because you don't have to be a music major. You don't have to make a career in music, even if you are a music major. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you can find what you're good at. Uh, and what matters is your commitment to the band and your participation, not necessarily your academic pursuits or things like that. It matters you know, your conviction and and wanting to do well and for your band and do good things. Yeah. You know, um, recording, we are recording this, um, on the evening of, um, the state funeral of, um, president Bush. And, um, one of the things that I kept hearing over and over, um, with, different people were talking about was his um, life of service. And there were so many parallels to to things people said about him to some of the ideals that we talk about in the fraternity. Um, But this, you know, whether regardless of what 
you do in your professional life or your your pursuit in your major or anything, this idea of a life of selfless service. You know, President Bush was uh, of that era, you know, when when I, you know, just listening to you, um, when our organization started to change and, and we became, you know, more service oriented. And um, it's uh, that's a neat kind of note to sort of end the day on just making that connection um, about um, why we do what we do and, and how it really is just about your commitment to um, being called to serve and, and, and give up your time um, for something greater than yourself. It's incredible. And, and a good way to let everybody decompress after just throwing a page, you know, pages upon pages of information. It's kind of like being in history class for the last bit of time. Well, Clint, if um, a chapter or someone wanted to reach out to you, if they had a question or maybe curious about what you were talking about, um, you know, that ritual revision in 1941, um, how would they reach you? Well, uh, my contact information is available uh, in fraternity channels. Uh, It's on the website. You know, if you get a hard copy of the podium or Look on the online version in the back. Uh, it's in there as well. Uh, but my email address is Whedon, W-I-E-D-E-N. That's I before E. Uh, <laughs> rem- remember that and you'll be okay. W-I-E-D-E-N at KKSI.org. And drop me a line uh, and I will be happy to t- talk with you about some of this stuff. Uh, if I don't have details, uh, I know where I can find a little bit more and who I can talk to to get a little bit more uh, <laughs> as well. And, uh, you know, as I've said, uh, my uh, as I what I understand the plan to be right now uh, for my last conversation is we'll be talking about this uh, at the Southeast District Convention this spring as well uh, in some of this stuff. And uh, uh, I'll obviously be at the Southwest District Convention, though I may be a little uh, occupied. <laughs> hopefully not too occupied. Uh, hopefully, th- you know, uh, if I'm too occupied, then that means there's a problem. And I don't want there to be a problem. So. <laughs> so, and then, of course, but, um, I know we'll be delving into all kinds of things at National Convention, um, things on display, you know, that you're mentioning. Um, and then again, if you haven't had the opportunity to check out the Centennial website, um, so much of what um, Clint was mentioning is on an interactive timeline. So please do um, take Take a look at that. Um, you know, that that resource is is there for you um, and some other information um, on that Centennial website. But um, thanks again, Clint. Um, yeah, and and I, I will second that uh, visit the Centennial website. Uh, you know, the folks that have put that together and the work that's been done on that has just been phenomenal. Uh, and I know that's a major undertaking uh, to get something like that up and running, uh, let alone, you know, just the site itself, let alone to input all the information and everything. Uh, that's been added to that site. It's a wonderful resource. And pictures. Uh, and pictures. Yes. Uh, yeah, and uh, we've mentioned Aaron Moore a couple of times, and uh, I know how much Aaron's been using the scanners uh, to get those petitioning documents and things, uh, <laughs> those images of all that ready uh, for the Centennial and the website and all that. Uh, it's just it's such a major undertaking. I'm so impressed uh, with everything that's been done with that. And I, I will second that. I encourage all of you to 
take a look at that. Uh, you can get a lot more information uh, than the little bits and pieces I've thrown tonight about some of the, you know, the kind of the progression of our chapter foundings and uh, the national conventions and all that. It's uh, it's really worth your time to go take a look. <laughs> all right, guys, and listening out there, brothers, uh, we appreciate you. Um, tune in um, as we delve more into history, like I said, and talk about World War II. Um, to brothers out there, thanks for listening and keep striving. Thank <laughs> you.